Fish with Public, and today our guest is the Reverend Andy Bales, President and CEO of Union Rescue Mission in downtown Los Angeles, which is the city's oldest mission and one of the country's largest. Andy is something of a legend around here. He's a charismatic presence and a contrarian voice, beloved even by those who disagree with him. We spoke in his office in the heart of Skid Row, a dangerous and wildly chaotic 50 square blocks, home to the largest homeless encampment in the country. These days, its residents are suffering the brunt of a deadly fentanyl crisis. Andy has helped countless escape the misery of the streets while keeping a light on the misguided policies that perpetuate this human rights catastrophe. As we spoke, in fact, news broke that another LA City Council member had been indicted on corruption charges, in this case for allegedly receiving kickbacks from developers building housing for the homeless with taxpayer funds. How did the son of an Iowa pastor end up here? Nearly 40 years ago, he began as a teacher. But I pondered it all night and I thought, you know, what in the world can I do about a youngster who feels like a loser? Uh, where in this tough world will they find love if they can't find it in this classroom? So I went home, studied my Bible, what should I share? And I came across the verses that say the way that we treat another human being is the way that we treat God himself. Uh, the worst thing you could do to a parent is mistreat their child. And I tried to convey to the kids that uh, if we mistreat another person, it's like tr mistreating God's child. And the Bible says that if we feed somebody who's hungry, it's like feeding Jesus himself. And if we turn our backs on somebody who's hungry, it's like turning our backs on Jesus himself. Uh, I shared that if you say a hurting word to an already hurting person, I think that's like saying a hurting word to God himself. Like, just like a parent would feel if you said a hurting word to their already hurting child. And so I thought, man, I, I really preached a great sermon. I should have taken notes on myself. The kids all heard it once, uh, but I heard it six times. And I thought, you know, I told my wife, I'm sure I made an impact on the kids because it was the best sermon I had ever preached and, or best sermon I'd ever heard. And I preached it. And, uh, but that was on a Friday. And as I, I said, the kids all heard it once, but I heard the message six times. And I'm sitting in my second job. I, I taught school all week long, and on the weekend I worked 38 hours in a parking ramp. I'm the guy sitting in the uh, booth taking tickets and money and not working very hard, but I'm sitting there about ready to eat my sandwich, and I heard this knock on the window. And I looked up, and here's this bearded man, missing his teeth, long, dirty coat, and a bag of soda pop cans slung over his shoulder, and I could tell he was uh, devastated by homelessness. And I, uh, I, uh, he said, sir, can I have your sandwich? And I looked at him, and I looked at my sandwich, and I thought about the hours ahead, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I need my sandwich. And his face drooped with disappointment, and he disappeared into the cold darkness. And it was like a hammer hit me. <laughs> it was like, Andy, you preach this six times to the kids, and you, when you got an opportunity, you, you, you missed your chance. So I hoped and prayed for another chance. And a few weeks later, I found him on the street and fed him dinner. And a few weeks after that, I didn't tell anybody this story because I was embarrassed that I failed so badly. 
but my missions pastor caught me in the hall and said, Andy, there's a job opening down at the downtown rescue mission. I think you should go apply. And so I reluctantly went uh, on the way to the job thinking no one will ever hear from me again if I go uh, take this job. And I was used to missions being kind of bleak and uh, my dad would speak and I would sing and the place was, you know, packed and Sometimes a drunk man would fall out of a chair, and afterwards we'd eat a watery bowl of soup and a, and a stale piece of bread, and that's the picture I had in missions. But when I got to the mission, it was called the Door of Faith Mission then, um, I saw it was clean and neat, the guys were sober, the food was great, and I thought, wow, this is a chance to practice what I preached. And uh, so the failure that I had to practice what I preached led me to find my passion I was kind of lost I was 25 I'd been a pastor a youth pastor a school teacher and I still wasn't quite where I wanted to be and so I kind of found myself by failing to practice what I preached and found my niche and found my calling and and uh, I found a place I really enjoyed to work. I look forward to coming to work every day. And uh, lots of things happened in the meantime, but I was there four years at that mission. And then a group of churches came to me and said, we want to do something for moms and kids. Could you help us? And we turned a coalition of six churches into a coalition of 120 churches and created 156 units of housing and after-school program for 300 kids and uh, summer camp for 300 kids and much more. And then I was comfortable, and I'm never comfortable when I'm comfortable, and a church in Pasadena called me to come teach them how to reach out to the impoverished neighbors uh, around them. So I, I did that, uh, but in Pasadena, I uh, ran into obstacle after obstacle. I, I got named Des Moines, uh, Iowa's uh, neighbor of the year, according to the Des Moines Register in Iowa for doing exactly what I was doing in Pasadena, but in Pasadena I was sometimes felt like public enemy number one for caring about people who were devastated by homelessness. What year was that? When did you start in Pasadena? I started in Pasadena in uh, uh, December 31st of 1999, and I left, uh, I left there um, after getting into some hot water because of uh, the way people felt about me. Uh, a city planner, uh, city council person and a wealthy neighbor came and complained to the church about uh, what I was doing and they said that um, uh, that if I kept doing my job, kept doing what I was doing, that uh, the church would get nowhere. So I, I kind of panicked. I should have trusted the church and I ran for city council against the guy that was complaining about me and uh, my church tried to corral my passion by, by putting me on a uh, leave. Uh, so I'm sitting in my front yard unemployed and the president or the chairman of the board of Union Rescue Mission came and offered me to become the president and CEO of Union Rescue Mission, the largest rescue mission in the country. And I just said, I looked at my bushes and thought, God, you, you're too good to me. I, I made a mistake. I failed again. And uh, here I get this great opportunity. So. I, I kind of kidded at the time. I worked my whole life to end up on Skid Row, and I finally made it. Um, that's what brought me to the, the, the doors of 
Union Rescue Mission. And as soon as I arrived, what, what was interesting, I lost the political battle there. But as soon as I arrived, they handed me this folder and said, here's what you need to accomplish. And they, they said, we need to move our moms and kids to a safer place outside of Skid Row. And they had several options at that time, but we ended up at Silmar uh, Hope Gardens Family Center, and it turned into a 21-month, $1.9 million, 34 neighborhood beatings. I, I call them beatings instead of meetings because it was a battle to get the right to move our moms and kids to the safety of Hope Gardens. But I learned from my first experience not to run for office is the first key <laughs> and uh, stay stay focused and uh, we actually won the right to move our moms and kids to the safety of Hope Gardens which is probably one of my biggest uh, achievements while I've been here biggest our biggest achievement was getting uh, actually overcoming the the obstacles that keep people on Skid Row because people are corralled and contained on Skid Row, the biggest man-made disaster in the U.S., uh, in my opinion, and uh, there's all these forces keeping them here, not only addiction, but, you know, the system and hospital dump-offs and all kinds of stuff that keeps people stuck on Skid Row, mm -hmm. and we were the first to obliterate that barrier and move, move something, and now our our whole plan is based on decentralizing Skid Row and regionalizing services throughout LA County. Can you talk a little bit about how the intersecting issues of homelessness and addiction and mental health have changed since you first arrived here? When I started, you know, 37 years ago, it was all white alcoholic men for the most part, at, at the mission I was at. And uh, that quickly changed as crack cocaine hit in LA, it also hit in Des Moines, which caused uh, the first blacks to come to the mission for help. I remember, I think our guy was named Cliff, and he was a Vietnam vet, and he'd fallen into crack use, and showed up at the mission in Des Moines, and then I started finding families as I went out on the streets in Des Moines uh, looking for people. I found families in abandoned buildings and I started putting them up in hotels and realized, wow, we, we have to do something more permanent than hotels because this is getting to be a complicated, expensive problem. And I tried to get the mission there to expand to families and they said, no, we're going to stick with men. And so that's when I took the offer to uh, work with the churches to help families but at the same time it was happening in Des Moines it was happening here like our hall of history everybody asked me all the time why is our hall of history all white well crack uh, blacks didn't show up on Skid Row till crack showed up and it changed everything well then meth came and so when I came here uh, it was still mostly crack what, 18, 19 years ago uh, and it was mostly black on Skid Row and at Union Rescue Mission. But when meth was introduced purposefully, I believe, by cartels to make money, it hit every ethnic group that you can name. It hit every ethnic group, store, uh, tore away the family fabric that held people uh, home and 
from falling on the streets. And meth created a disaster on Skid Row. Mental health, I mean, it added to mental health issues. And, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough money making. Uh, then uh, the cartels added uh, fentanyl. Uh, they had a, a guy named The Brain, a, a genius who added fentanyl to the mix and uh, made the meth addiction even worse because it made it physically addictive. And uh, now it's meth plus fentanyl and now horse tranquilizer, uh, which makes the Narcan uh, unable to reverse uh, uh, things on Skid Row. So, and it's hard to determine whether people's mental health led to the homelessness or their homelessness led to the mental health, but mental health is a huge issue among the homeless. And addiction is a huge issue. Um, perhaps as high as 70 to 80 percent uh, and that has really changed because um, when when we did Hope Gardens I could honestly say to the neighbors 12 to 17 percent of our moms who are coming to Hope Gardens are addicted well that's way over 50 percent now and it's a bigger issue now uh, than it's ever been and uh, uh, you don't know whether the homelessness caused the addiction or the addiction caused the homelessness, but whatever issue it is, uh, whichever one, uh, you have to deal with the addiction, in my opinion, to overcome the homelessness. When I talk to kids about <laughs> avoiding homelessness, I say, graduate from high school, get some specialized training, or go to college, and don't let any, uh, don't don't become addicted to any substance. Uh, if you do all of those things, I won't ever see you at the mission. But if you do not finish high school, don't finish specialized career training, uh, and have an addiction, I'll likely see you at so the mission. When and where did we go wrong in Los Angeles? How did we get to this point where six people, six homeless people are dying per day, uh, the vast majority from overdoses, mostly yeah. fentanyl? We couldn't have done worse. Our policies couldn't have been worse if somebody would mapped it out how to do the most damage to the, the population of homelessness. We didn't immediately create places to go for people who were suffering from homelessness. We had such a shortage of shelter beds mm -hmm. and then instead of building more shelter beds we came up with this idea of housing first and the harm reduction policy, which means uh, build very expensive, slow to develop units uh, that take up to four years to build and cost, starting at 500,000, but now cost a million. So the plan in itself was not to get people under a safe roof and protected from the disasters that await on the streets, it was to let them suffer on the streets while we build this eventual housing. Meanwhile, people are uh, suffering on the streets, losing their mental health. I, I spend one night a year out on the streets and I'm the next day I'm a wreck. I, I couldn't make it two nights without permanent mental health issues. Uh, Jamie Foxx 
did the soloist. He spent weeks at a time on Skid Row. He's still suffering from mental health issues, psych psychiatric issues. Uh, it's leaving people on the streets. The worst thing that we could do as 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 humans. It's we weren't meant to live on the streets, and people are destroyed physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, educationally, vocationally. It destroys people in every way. But we made the decision to let the many suffer on the streets while we helped a few at a time. And uh, that devastated uh, a whole generation of people and a population. And uh, they became so... It was it was horrible planning because they said the focus was on the chronic homeless, mentally ill. They're gonna they're gonna rescue the few, right, with housing, while they leave the many on the streets. And now, it's been such a plodding, slow uh, disaster of inefficiency that the people on the streets have become. Uh, I think chronic homelessness went up like 50% in the in the process. And today, right, when, when they started Measure HHH, they were going to build 10,000 units. We had 50,000 homeless. They were going to solve one-fifth of the homelessness with 10,000 units, right? Well, after seven years, they built 2,250, which is about one-fifth of the one-fifth goal, right? And now there's... 70,000 people who are homeless and 50,000 who are devastated on the streets. Uh, street homelessness in California skyrocketed during the Housing First harm reduction, and it was a doubling down on that only in California. The only state that doubled down on that, but our street homelessness skyrocketed uh, compared to everybody else in the nation. And uh, now I had to change. I was at a I was at a, a Capitol building in D.C. press conference, and I was going to say 25% of the U.S. street homelessness is in California. Somebody whispered in my ear, no, results came out last week. We have 50% of the U.S. street homelessness is in California, yeah. the only state that doubled down on Housing First and harm reduction. I sent you an article. Mm -hmm. Numbers don't lie, and numbers don't lie and you quoted six people per day I can remember when it was two and we were alarmed per day we're dying uh, on the streets of complications of homelessness most of those deaths are overdose deaths and yet not only are we still stuck in the housing first harm reduction policy and the harm reduction policy by, by the way is a free flow of hard drugs within the buildings so a guy ran up to me the other uh, a few months ago and he said, who are you? I said, I'm Andy Bales. This is Hal Eisner from Fox News. He said, what are you guys doing about this situation? And I told him we're out here doing a story about homelessness. And he said, if we want to do something, stop the drug gangs from moving themselves in our apartments, kicking us to the curb, taking over our apartments and selling drugs. And I just tweeted what he said to me. It was just a tweet directly from his lips. Uh, and... Uh, the activists on Skid Row called me out for demonizing gangs and a gang member from across the street who was selling drugs came over and told our, our uh, guy on the dock that tell your boss to shut up about us and that night I didn't shut up I called the commander of the police force and he set up 
cameras in my office and they documented the guys selling drugs and arrested the supplier. Uh, but that's, that's the reality of where the Housing First harm reduction policy has gotten us. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Publix Podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.